You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood, and I am your host for today's episode. In this edition of Locally Sourced Science, as COVID cases rise across the nation, we continue our series of interviews with scientists who have decided to use their expertise in their respective fields to help further research into the biology of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. First off, you'll hear Esther Bercusen's interview of Dr. Matthew DeLisa, a professor of engineering at Cornell University. His laboratory has been developing a universal influenza vaccine, but recently altered that technology to start working on a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. In today's second interview, Esther speaks with Dr. Cedric Fischelt, a professor in the Cornell Department of Molecular Biology and Genetics. Dr. Fischelt's laboratory uses functional and computational genomics to understand how mobile DNA elements have contributed to evolution. But following the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, he has begun studying host cell genes that may modulate the entry of coronavirus into human cells. Here's Esther Rakusen with Dr. Matthew DeLisa. This is Esther Rakusen for Locally Sourced Science. News media outlets of all types have recently been reporting that new vaccines against SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19, will be distributed in coming weeks and months. Pharmaceutical companies Pfizer and Moderna make the new vaccines. They both use messenger RNA technology to elicit an immune response against a SARS-CoV-2 surface protein. Locally sourced science listeners are probably aware that there are many researchers developing other types of vaccines against SARS-CoV-2. I recently spoke with one such researcher, Dr. Matt DeLisa, the William L. Lewis Professor at the Cornell Smith School of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering. He is also the director of the Institute of Biotechnology. He and colleague Dr. David Putnam in the Cornell Meinig School of Biomedical Engineering have for years been developing the use of OMVs, or outer membrane vesicles from bacteria, for use in vaccines. I recently spoke with Dr. DeLisa about this technology and how he and fellow colleagues hope to use the OMV technology to develop an effective vaccine against SARS-CoV-2. I started off by asking Dr. DeLisa to describe bacterial outer membrane vesicles, or OMVs. What these vesicles are, just to help orient everyone, are small bits of material that bleb off or release from the outer surface of a bacterial cell. So, in fact, all, just about all cells in nature, including cells in our body, bleb off these small vesicles, but uh, we've known about it in bacteria for, um, for the longest amount of time. Um, and these vesicles uh, range in size from about 50 up to about 250 nanometers, um, which is actually a perfect size for uh, bringing specific biomolecular cargo 
um, to the immune system and um, using that cargo to train the immune system to later be able to recognize that same cargo when it is present on the surface of a bacterial pathogen uh, or on the surface of an infectious virus like SARS-CoV-2. Dr. DeLisa and colleagues have been using synthetic biology to alter the surface of OMVs so that they display viral antigens on their surface. Here he explains. We've been studying how we can use synthetic biology to um, remodel the surface or the interior of these vesicles with um, vaccine antigens, such as proteins from and, and um, carbohydrates from SARS-CoV-2. And then ultimately, we've been putting these little vesicles to the test by injecting engineered versions of them into living animals, like, um, uh, like a mouse, uh, to establish the effectiveness of these particles uh, in their ability to turn on a very strong immune response to specific pathogens. Here, he talks about the idea behind using OMVs as a non-pathogenic carrier of viral proteins in vaccines. The idea is if you could create these same antigens in a um, non-pathogenic, um, non-viral framework, um, you could present them to the immune system in sort of a dry run and give the immune system an opportunity to see that antigen, um, but in a way that is not potentially lethal. Um, and in doing so, the immune system becomes effectively trained um, and because our immune system not only can respond to these types of antigens, but can develop a memory for them, um, the idea is we present the antigens in a safe and non, um, non-lethal, uh, non-pathogenic particle. And then later on, if our body again sees that same protein antigen, but this time let's say it's on the surface of SARS-CoV-2, our immune system can respond and attack in a much more effective way than it would otherwise. Here, Dr. DeLisa talks about what viral antigens are and how his group engineers bacteria to display them. Viral antigens are, is, a, is a term generally used to refer to um, any sort of um, substructure that's present on the surface or exterior of the virus. So generally, these are, these are proteins, uh, but they can also be uh, carbohydrates um, or um, carbohydrates linked to proteins that are found on the surface of a, either a bacterial pathogen uh, or for the sake of today's conversation on, on the surface of a virus like SARS-CoV-2. Um, these are important, um, these particular proteins, because uh, due to their location on the exterior or the surface of the virus, they end up being the first um, uh, component that our immune system detects when these viruses enter into our bodies. I then asked how they engineer the bacteria to produce viral antigens. The way we do it for our technology is that we give instructions for not only making these, um, these viral antigen proteins, but for making them in a very specific location. And that happens to be on the cell surface of the bacteria. And the reason we do that is because if the antigens are made on the cell surface, when these small nanometer vesicles bleb off, our antigens will actually become part of those vesicles. They'll, they'll ultimately become incorporated as cargo that is now present on the surface of our, of, of our vesicles, our outer membrane vesicles, and then these can be used for training the immune system as I spoke about. I wondered how difficult it is to isolate the OMVs from the bacteria. 
It actually is one of the great advantages of our technology. It's, it's, uh, and, and the reason it's an advantage is because collecting them turns out to be quite simple. Um, because of their small size, um, but also uh, other bits of uh, other properties that they um, are bestowed with, like their buoyancy, we can actually easily separate them from the bacterial cells by a process known as centrifugation, which is the use of a centrifuge to spin the cells and all of their components, including these vesicles at very high speeds. And the vesicles themselves um, can be isolated through that centrifugation process. You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin, and I'm speaking with Cornell professor, Dr. Matt DeLisa. He and his colleagues develop vaccines that use bacterial outer membrane vesicles, or OMVs, to elicit an immune response. Here, Dr. DeLisa discusses why OMV vaccine technology does not require an adjuvant to help stimulate an immune response. Generally, when you think about um, training the immune system, um, the idea is to present bits or parts of the pathogen to the immune system so that it will later recognize that pathogen during an infection. But often when you deliver these bits and pieces of the pathogen, on their own, they may not be strong enough to elicit a, a desirable immune response, and um, the training of the immune system is less than optimal. So the way that scientists have figured out um, to optimize the strength of the immune response is to combine these little bits and, and pieces of a, of a pathogen with another component known as an adjuvant, which is designed to um, further turn on or alert the immune system so that the response to the bits and pieces of the virus end up being stronger than they would be otherwise. Um, so generally, um, and, and we've seen this with some of the SARS-CoV-2 um, vaccines that are currently being developed, generally these bits and pieces have to be formulated with a special adjuvant that has this property of, of um, boosting the immune system in the presence of these viral bits and pieces. But the beautiful part of these outer membrane vesicles is that uh, they do not require the addition of any extra adjuvants. And that's because there are other factors that are part of these little um, nanometer scale particles that themselves um, serve as the adjuvant. Dr. DeLisa and his colleague, Dr. David Putnam, have been using the OMV technology to create what they call a universal influenza vaccine. Here he explains. It turns out actually that prior to SARS-CoV-2, uh, over the past um, four or five years, um, I've been working together with um, uh, with Dave Putnam uh, in the BME, the Biomedical Engineering uh, Department at Cornell, on not only developing these vaccines, but developing them specifically uh, for um, influenza. So we, we have long been working on trying to create these vesicles for a different virus, the virus that, that causes um, uh, annual flu outbreaks that we're always constantly, um, constantly dealing with. Um, our idea was to not only use these vesicles for creating a flu vaccine, but to actually uh, create a universal flu vaccine so that you would ultimately be injected one time, maybe twice in your life, and never have to get another flu shot again. But from that um, single vaccination, uh, you'd have the potential to be protected from the vast majority of flu strains um, that, you, that your body may see in your lifetime. The use of OMVs to create a universal influenza vaccine has been successful so far, and a company called Versatope 
is further developing the technology. Now, Dr. DeLisa and colleagues have started to work on a universal SARS vaccine. Here he explains. So when the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic uh, emerged within the last year, um, we were very well positioned with knowledge on how to create vaccines against the flu virus to adapt and modify some of those same methodologies for creating outer membrane vesicles for SARS-CoV-2. Um, we have not yet tested um, our outer membrane vesicles against uh, the, SARS, um, the SARS virus in a, lab in a laboratory setting yet, but we do have candidates that have been created and we're slowly working our way towards that objective. I asked Dr. DeLisa how his group will decide which SARS-CoV-2 antigen to use in their vaccines. Uh, prior to the pandemic, many groups that had been studying uh, SARS um, uh, coronavirus 1, the first SARS coronavirus, and also MERS, uh, they had, uh, it had been discovered that uh, a particular protein called the spike protein was one of these surface antigens um, that is turning out to be a very good antigen for vaccine development. However, it's not the only one. It is the one that the vast majority of uh, the vaccines that we're hearing about in the news, including the one from Moderna and also the one from Pfizer, uh, it, it turns out to be the antigen that are, that's at the center of, of those vaccines. We actually, in, in the course of moving towards this universal vaccine concept, we've been exploring other um, surface protein antigens on the virus beyond just the spike protein. Of course, we're not gonna stick our heads in the sand. We're also looking at the spike protein as well. But there are a few other proteins on the surface that look to be really interesting to us um, conserved proteins that we think would be present in not just SARS-CoV-2, but many of the other coronaviruses. And these are some of the protein antigens that we're trying to develop with the hopes of not just getting protection against the current virus, but, but as I said, trying to strive for broader protection um, uh, against um, the coronavirus family. To conclude, Dr. DeLisa expresses his hope that perhaps his lab or other labs will, in the future, be able to develop an anti-SARS vaccine that will protect against all types of coronaviruses. We have an opportunity to think about creating vaccines for SARS-CoV-2 um, that, like our flu vaccine, could be universal, right? We have seen that SARS-CoV-2 is not the first coronavirus that has impacted our population. It's obviously the most serious. Um, but we've had two other previous um, coronavirus outbreaks that were themselves quite serious at the time. And many believe that the SARS-CoV-2 virus will not be the last coronavirus to, um, to become a problem for humans. So we're, we're also thinking about um, a universal coronavirus vaccine, uh, a pan-coronavirus vaccine, uh, vaccine that could be given to individuals that would protect them against SARS-CoV-2, but also against other future um, coronaviruses that could possibly emerge in the population. So, so this is something, besides the fact that it's a new technology, we're also thinking about a vaccine that potentially could provide universal protection. We don't know yet whether any of the current vaccines that are in development um, will, will, will be universal. We, we know that they're looking to be quite effective against this specific virus, but whether they'll actually cross-protect against other viruses, uh, it's not exactly what they were designed to do. So we're preparing ourselves and um, developing our own candidates that we think might have that potential. Thank you very much for talking with me, Dr. DeLisa, the William L. Lewis Professor at the Cornell Smith School of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering. 
Yeah, wonderful. And, and thank you very much for having me. It was a real pleasure talking to you today. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. Research scientists are trying to understand how the SARS-CoV-2 virus gains entry into cells and whether some host cells are more vulnerable than others to viral infection. To learn more about what host cell factors are important to viral entry, I spoke with Dr. Cedric Fischot, professor in the Cornell Department of Molecular Biology and Genetics. Dr. Fischot's lab usually focuses on the study of mobile DNA elements, pieces of DNA that can move around in the genomes of different organisms. But since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Fashot and some of his colleagues, Drs. Manu Singh and Vikas Bensal, have begun to study host cell expression of genes called SCARFs. That acronym stands for SARS-CoV-2 and coronavirus-associated receptors and factors. SCARFs include cellular factors both facilitating and restricting viral entry. To start off, I asked Dr. Fischot to describe how the SARS-CoV-2 virus is believed to enter host cells. So the the SARS-CoV-2 is a coronavirus, and these viruses are enveloped viruses. like many viruses are. And that means that they have proteins on their outer shell that recognize receptors, which are host cellular factors that are sitting on the membrane of cells. And they kind of like a lock and a key. They, they, have, the, they have the key that get into these locks. So they really bind physically with receptors and that then promote the fusion actually of the shell, which is made of the same lipid material as our own cell membranes, the fusion of that shell with the host cell membrane, and then their genetic material, they have their own genome, enters the cell. And these are, in this case, this is an RNA virus, so its own genome is an RNA molecule that's gonna self-replicate using the machinery of the host cell. So really there's a physical interaction between viral proteins and the host cell proteins, and that mediates um, the entry of the virus into the cell. Dr. Fashot studies the expression of host cell genes that might facilitate SARS-CoV-2 entry. Here, he describes host gene expression. You know, we have genome, which is made of DNA in every cell. We have a whole genome and a whole set of genes that make up an organism and these are about 20,000 genes in humans. And these encode eventually proteins, which are sort of the building blocks of the cells and all the functional the enzymes and all the functional parts of the cells. To make a protein from DNA, you need to go through an RNA intermediate. So it's an intermediate nucleic acid. And so the genome really encodes RNA, and then the RNA is then what we say translated into proteins. So um, of course, not every cell needs to make all the proteins. And depending on where in your body you look at, which organs, which types of cells, they will express, we'd say, express a number of genes. And so therefore a number of proteins, you know, probably on the order of 5,000 out of the 20,000 that we all have, all the cells have the same set. 
But you know, if you look at a heart cell, it will make 5,000 proteins like this. And if you look at the brain or neuronal cell, it will make another different subset of maybe five or 10,000 proteins. And so every cell has a landscape, a different landscape of gene expression. It turns out that there are libraries of transcriptomes, which are a set of all RNA transcripts, including coding and non-coding, in an individual or a population of cells. Here, he explains. You can actually count how many RNA molecules or particular protein um, are made by at the single cell level. You can look at it uh, in a very comprehensive way. Dr. Fashot and colleagues analyzed the transcriptomes from cells infected with other coronaviruses, such as SARS-CoV-1 and MERS, two that caused disease outbreaks 5 to 12 years ago. They also looked at transcriptomes from cells infected with coronaviruses that caused the common cold. Here, he talks about how they found the transcripts encoding SCARFs, 28 human genes encoding factors modulating the entry of coronavirus into human cells. Yeah, so again, these are 28 genes out of about 20,000 that we have in our genome. So it's a very small set of genes, right? And, and this, we simply went into the literature, look at papers, you know, we're in lockdown, right? Yeah. <laughs> Read a lot of papers <laughs> about coronaviruses. There has been, there has been quite a bit of work done on the SARS-CoV-1, which also led to a small epidemic, not, of course, the size of SARS-CoV-2. And there's been a work also on another coronavirus called MERS. And, you know, and then there is a common human coronavirus, you know, that causes like a common cold. But what we, where we started is where with the receptors and other factors that were important for the entry of other coronaviruses that we knew a little bit better at the time. Um, so we made a list of those and we thought, well, some of those we, we know and we suspect would be important for the entry of SARS-CoV-2. And then there were a handful, really only a handful of, um, of these scarves, of these 28, for which we knew from experiments that had been conducted by other, other groups uh, very quickly after this virus was discovered, we knew that these factors were actually critical or very important for the entry or the replication of SARS-CoV-2. Cedric then talked about some of the SCARFs that encode proteins important for virus entry. And that includes, you know, a receptor called ACE2, which was also the, a receptor identified by, for SARS-CoV-1. So it's a pretty well-known factor and also includes another protein called a protease, which is also very important in the early step of infection, right? It's actually required for the entry as well, just like the receptors. Uh, in, this, in this case, it's called TEMPRESS2. So these two factors, ACE2 and TEMPRESS2, had been identified as essential or very important uh, for the entry of SARS-CoV-2. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm talking with Dr. Cedric Fischot, who is studying the gene expression of proteins called SCARFs, which are thought to be important in the entry of the SARS-CoV-2 virus into host cells. I then asked Dr. Fischot, how do you look at gene expression in human tissues? 
Here, he talks about how the transcriptome data for healthy human tissues is freely available. So all the tissues we've looked at were from healthy people. Gene expression is variable in the human population, right? So depending on who you look, you will get slightly different results. So it's important to keep in mind. All the data we've used was not data we generated ourselves. We only did the analysis of this data. The data was publicly available in databases. And so we can download, and really truly anyone can do this. You can download the data, and then you need to dig into it, mine that data, and to analyze the expression of these different genes, okay? So it was all publicly available. It was whole, uh, only healthy organs. So we've looked at, and it was all single cell RNA-seq data. Dr. Fischot's group analyzed many different kinds of human tissues. Now, not only we can look at a given tissue or organ, say the heart or the, you know, the brain, but instead of looking at the whole tissue in what we used to call bulk analysis of the RNAs, we can look at every single cell in that tissue and quantify how much, how is the gene expression landscape of each single cell. The analysis of different human tissues showed that specific cells in certain organs express high levels of SCARF transcripts. Here are some of the results. The SCARFs are not very highly expressed. So, for example, the receptor H2 is not very highly expressed in the human embryo, which is good news. It's telling you that probably the embryo is not going to be very susceptible to infection by these virus. And that has actually been shown now with embryonic stem cells. We looked at the reproductive organs, um, testes and ovaries. We looked at the placenta. And then we looked at 200,000 cells from adult organs, 14 adult organs. So kidneys, lungs, intestines, um, you know, uh, liver, and so on many of our predictions as far as which organs would be actually be susceptible to the virus has kind of turned out to be true now because now people have seen virus infecting these particular tissues okay so some of the things we found that were is the the for example the intestine so the enterocytes are the cells that line up your intestine for example the colon these express very high level of the receptor for SARS-CoV-2 okay very very high uh, one of the highest level in the whole body. So that makes them really susceptible to this virus. And in fact, now we know that's true, you know, associated with some of the symptoms, the, you know, digestive symptoms, diarrhea, uh, nausea that are, that are associated with, you know, COVID-19. Then we also, um, within the kidney, we actually found only one cell type, these proximal tubules that express high level of the receptor. So we suspect that this can be infected. And now, in fact, it's been seen. There's, you know, many potential uh, kidney issues, actually, with this disease. So Dr. Fischot and colleagues have found that there are a diverse set of human cells that express SCARFs and thus may be very susceptible to infection by SARS-CoV-2. It very much looks like COVID-19 is a multi-organ, multi-system disease. And again, you know, intestine, the kidney, the brain, the heart, is now well documented also to be infected often. So that's the complexity of the disease that we have to deal with. I then asked Dr. Fischot, what are some of the questions that he and his colleagues plan to explore in the future? 
Here, he talks about one idea to study what happens to host gene expression in cells that are infected with SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, so one interesting question and something that we are, we are working on now, what's next, right, uh, is actually what happened to gene expression during an infection. Because all the things that I've told you about is in the context of healthy people. But then once the virus gets in, then what happens to, the, to genes, to our own genes, right? And we know, we know because all viruses do that. The viruses, their own proteins will manipulate gene expression in many ways, many sneaky ways, in many ways that we still don't even understand or know. So what we are looking at now is, uh, for instance, in the context of the placenta, we have uh, infected placentas where we can profile gene expression and compare with a healthy placenta. And also we have placenta with disease placentas, like with diseases such as preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. So we also want, have, we have preeclamptic placentas infected with SARS-CoV-2 as well. So we can kind of compare all of these. And what we expect to see is actually pretty dramatic shift in gene expression between these different infected or non-infected tissues. And that with the, help, that, that with the hope that it would you know, help um, understand you know, the course of an infection and also, again, you know, try to design new, new treatment. Again, I'd like to thank Dr. Cedric Fischot of the Cornell Department of Molecular Biology and Genetics for meeting via Zoom. He discussed research done by postdoctoral fellow Dr. Manu Singh and his colleague Dr. Vikas Bansal of the Max Planck Institute in Tübingen, Germany. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Locally Sourced Science. On today's show, you heard Esther Rakusen interview Drs. Matthew DeLisa and Cedric Fischot about their current research on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. I, Liz Mahood, was your host. We thank Joe Lewis for the introduction and Blue Dot Sessions for the music. If you'd like to learn more about today's episode, listen to archived episodes, or download our podcast, head to our website, www.locallysourcedscience.org.